This morning, I want to continue on with my sermon series that we started last week entitled, Music to Change the World. We noted how music really has a unique place in our lives. That music can speak to your soul in a way that nothing else can. You can hear some music and suddenly be taken back a long time ago to a certain experience. You can hear a piece of music and it can invoke the feelings that you had with a certain memory. But beyond that, music can also inspire. It can lift your soul. It calls you to rise up and to give yourself to something greater than yourself. Music can inspire you to want to go out and change the world. That's the kind of music that I wanted us to look at this week. And the song I wanted us to look at was, We Shall Overcome. It has been said that this was the most powerful song in the 20th century. The first time that we hear the song being sung by a group of people who are trying to change their world is in 1945. It's the tobacco workers in Charleston, South Carolina. It was mainly a group of African-American women. They were trying to strike for the issue of their pay, to try to raise it, to improve their working conditions, both of which were deplorable. They would be out on the picket lines all day long, and then at the end of the day, they would sing, I will overcome. I will overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe I will overcome someday. Well, it turned out that Zephelia Horton was there in Charleston, South Carolina during this strike. She was there to try to encourage the women and to be supportive of them. Zephelia was from Highlander Folk County, Highland Folk um, School in Mont Glen, Mont Eagle, Tennessee. The Highlander School had been started back in 1932 by her husband and two other men, one of whom was a Methodist minister. The purpose of Highlander was to bring together workers who were needing to improve their life, their situation, try to train them and teach them and help them know what to do. Well, as it would go through the 50s and the 60s, Highlander would begin to shift and its focus would wind up being on civil rights, segregation, wanting to confront those issues. The fascinating thing was to be able to come into Tennessee in the 1940s and 50s, it was illegal to have an interracial meeting. You could have whites come to a meeting, you could have blacks come to a meeting, but you couldn't have them come to the same meeting. But at Highlander, sometimes they did. And they always got harassed by the police, and it always caused problems with the law. It was a special place to come for all that kind of training. Well, Sophia had come back and she had this song that she had heard from these women singing. They're the tobacco workers who had been protesting. And she was the music person and began teaching other people, here's a song that you can go and sing. Well, while they were having one of these gatherings, it was in 1947, one of the people who came to it was Pete Seeger. Now, some of you I recognize here are old enough to know who Pete Seeger was. Pete Seeger died about three years ago. He was 94 years old. He was a folk singer back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. 
I mean, he's probably best known for the song he sung, Good Night, Irene. But he wrote songs like, If I Had a Hammer, and Where Have All the Flowers Gone, and Turn, Turn, Turn. Songs that were sung by other artists and made famous, but Pete's the one who wrote them. Well, Pete was this, this songwriter and this singer, but also an activist who really cared about segregation and trying to improve human rights. And so he had come and he was there and heard Sophia talk about this song, I Will Overcome Someday. And he said, you know, it's a great song, but in order for a group to sing it and for it to flow better, I think you need to change it to we shall from I will. We shall overcome. And so that's what they begin to teach at Highlander. We shall overcome. It's Pete Seeger who came up with that part of it. It was in 1959 that Guy Caravan, he became the new music director at Highlander. Zelfia had passed away. And when Guy came, he was hearing the song. And, you know, if you know Pete Seeger, you know, sometimes he can really sing slow. And it was Guy who said, you know, we kind of need to pick this up a little bit. We'll just sing it a little faster than what Pete was singing. And they were hosting a meeting of, of African-American women who had come, being trained in civil rights and what to do, by the way, one of whom was Rosa Park. But they were training this group, and they, the group said to Guy, put down the guitar. We will teach you how to really sing it a cappella. And so they did, and the music continued to take on its own feel. Well, it became such a powerful song. It was just a few years earlier that Pete was performing it for a group of people, one of whom happened to be Martin Luther King, Jr., and it was the next day after he had heard the performance that, that King said to Pete, you know that song, it just kind of sticks with you. It speaks to your soul. And so it did. And We Shall Overcome became that unofficial anthem for the, the civil rights movement there in the 60s. And it became so well known, everybody knew it, and when President Johnson was signing the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, he made this comment and talked about it. He said, even if we pass this bill, the battle will not be over. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of the American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life, their cause must be our cause too. Because it's not just Negroes, but really it's all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. And we shall overcome. You know, the fascinating thing about the song is the song isn't defiant. It's not a strong marching song. No, it's more like it's a promise. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. There was power in that song. It did something to people when they would sing, something they needed 
when they were out there trying to confront these issues of racism and segregation in our country. One of those who had been out on the front lines would reflect and say, when we had been beaten, arrested, detained, we would stand and sing together, we shall overcome. It gave you a sense of faith, a sense of strength, to continue to struggle and to push on. And you would lose your sense of fear. You'd lose your sense of fear when you stand together and you sing. And it gave you the faith, that hope to be able to to push on. That song found power not only here in the United States, but literally around the world. That song began to be sung anywhere there were people working on human rights and bettering the condition of other people. It was sung from North Ireland to Eastern Europe, from Berlin to Beijing, from South Africa to South America. The song has literally been sung around the world wherever people are trying to rise up and to confront the issues of human rights. They've been singing that song now for 70 years because it does something in your soul. But who wrote the first song, I Will Overcome? It actually was an African-American Methodist minister, Charles Albert Tinley, 1900, in Philadelphia. And when he wrote the song, he penned at the top his inspiration, Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Charles Tinley was looking at the very thing that Paul had been trying to say to the early church in Galatia. It's what inspired him to write the song. You see, when Paul was writing to the early church in Galatia, he was writing to a church that lived in a very difficult time. There was a culture in that day for Paul where human life was cheap. People were not respected. People were not all the same. Now you had lots of slaves, and then you had the free. And the free appreciated all the work the slaves gave them and made their life so good. They had total control over their lives. No, men had total control over women. They were considered to be property. No, the rich and the powerful, they could tell the poor what to do. It was a very difficult time in history. It was a time when the Greeks and the Jews, well, they didn't like each other. They didn't respect each other. And so Paul would write to the early church and he would say, let me explain to you, there is no Jew nor Greek nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. We are one in Christ. Paul was saying, don't you understand? Christ came for us all. We who are all so different, Christ came for us all. Every person is a child of God. Every person should be treated with dignity and respect. You need to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. 
No, Paul said, I'm calling you to a higher standard of the way that you go out and live in the world. And I know that's going to be tough. But do not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. That was the call to the early church. That was the call that Charles Albert Tinley was trying to say to his people. And it really is the call to you and me. Because truthfully, you and I still live in a time when so often there is such disrespect and there is prejudice and there is still racism and there are still so many challenges that we face with people being bullied and Jesus asks us to do something better than that. To rise to a different standard. There is no Greek. There is no Jew. There is no slave nor free nor male nor female. We are one in Christ. All to serve our sense of respect and dignity and how we're going to treat each other. And that's hard. To live to a higher standard is hard. But do not grow weary in well-doing. For if we do not, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Sometimes it takes a little music to speak to our soul and remind us. That's what I want us to think about this morning. There's really just two things I want to say. First of all, it is through our faith that you and I find the hope to hold on to. You hold on to hope. Because of your faith, when things are hard and life is unfair and things are difficult, it is your faith that you're able to have hope to hold on to. Charles Albert Tinley was an amazing man when you know his story. It turned out he was born in 1851. That's before the Civil War. His father was a slave. His mother was free. He was born in Maryland a slave-holding state. As a boy growing up, he went out into the fields with his father and the other slaves, even though he was free. He had nothing else to do. He was expected to work. You see, as a boy growing up, he could not be educated. It was against the law to educate the blacks. And so he had to go to work in the fields. He was 10 years old when the Civil War broke out, 14 years old when the Civil War ended. It changed his world. He decided to move to Philadelphia. There he met Daisy. They were married. He was 17 years old. She would be his lifelong mate. They would have a wonderful family. But Charles Tinley knew he had to get an education. So he taught himself how to read. Taught himself how to read. And he read everything he could get his hands on. And then he went to anybody who would. Would you tutor me? Would you help educate me? And so he got lots of people who would be willing to help tutor him. When they had gotten to Philadelphia, they had settled there, and they joined the Bainbridge Street Methodist Episcopal Church. For a while, he worked and helped in construction there. Finally, he actually became the janitor and was hired on staff at the church. And that's how he provided for his family, and he did that all day long, and then he continued to try to study at night until finally he heard the call to ministry. 
And when he heard the call to ministry, there were some classes that were open to him. And he began taking some of those classes and studying. And he wrote to Boston University. And there he got a correspondence course to learn Greek. And then he went to the local synagogue and convinced the rabbi to teach him Hebrew. I mean, this guy was smart. I mean, he was really smart. And so after all these years of studying, he went to the Methodist church to what we would consider our board of ordained ministry today and applied to be a Methodist minister. He had no degree from any school. He had never graduated from any school. But they were willing to test him. They were willing to ask questions, to interview him. And they found that he was a brilliant, committed person. And so they agreed to make him a Methodist minister. It was in 1889 that he would be ordained an elder just like me an elder in the Methodist Episcopal Church. Now, in those days when you were a pastor, the bishops believed you shouldn't serve a church more than two years, three years at a max. And so for the next decade, he served a church here and there every two to three years moving until 1902. And in 1902, they appointed him back to Bainbridge Street Methodist Church, the very church where he had been a janitor and worked for so many years. They had 130 members. He would now spend the rest of his life there serving that church. And when he left, they would have a membership of over 10,000. 10,000. The church grew and grew, had to move to another building. They called it East Calvary Methodist Church. And ultimately when he passed away, and if you go there today, you'll find it's called Tinsley Temple United Methodist Church. Alfred Albert Tinley. But it's not just that he made the church grow. What was amazing is the impact he had in the community. In the 1910s and 20s and the early 30s, African Americans didn't own their own home. And he kept telling them, you got to own your own home. But they couldn't get loans. So in the church, he started their own kind of mortgage company. They gave money and they raised money so they had some money to lend so people could buy their own home. He believed in education. He made sure that kids were going to stay in school and they could come to church and they'd be educated. He was so committed. They had food pantries. They had health care. He was so far ahead of his time in all the social programs he was putting into place there in, in Philadelphia. However, he really wasn't doing anything new that John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, had done 150 years before in England. That's exactly what Wesley did. Saying you need to own your own business and they raised the money to make the micro loans to members of the church. Start your business. Here we can help you. Get an education. It was the same thing that Charles Tinley was doing in the early 1900s there in Philadelphia. He made such an impact. It was incredible. All the mayors through the years, they would come to talk to him. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? He was a person of of prestige who made a difference. They called him the Prince of Preachers from 130 to 10,000. What an impact he had. But he didn't just preach, he also loved music. He didn't have a day of training in his life, but he loved music. And that's why he was able to write the gospel song, I Will Overcome, from Galatians 6, 9. But it's not the only one he wrote. He knew that he could overcome. 
He had hope that his life could and would get better because of his faith in Christ. It was his faith that gave him the hope that I will overcome, that life will be different. But he did write other songs that also expressed that hope. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the world is tossing me like a ship upon the sea, thou that rulest wind and water, stand by me. It was the belief that he stood with Christ is why he had the hope that things could and would get better someday. Someday. It really was a story of his life, but he believed could be the story of anyone's life. It's what you and I are called to do, to be those people of faith who really are the ones now of hope. We have hope to hold on to. And even though things may look difficult at times as you're trying to bless life and work with kids and after school programs and do all kinds of things to make a difference in this world, do not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. It was Martin Luther King who had voiced the same feeling. He said, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. And I believe it because somehow the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We shall overcome. Because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome. Because William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. We shall overcome. Because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold. Wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future. And behind the then unknown standeth God within the shadow. Keeping watch above his own. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. It's why we have hope. Secondly, I believe it is our faith that gives us the strength to do the right thing. It is not easy. It is our faith that gives us the strength to do the right thing. As Paul has called us to say, to treat all people with respect and dignity, there is no male nor female nor slave nor free nor Jew nor Greek. We are one in Christ. To treat people that way can be hard. It takes strength to do the right thing. You know, working on a sermon like this, I, I couldn't help but think about Nelson Mandela. After all, he too was a Methodist. And I thought of Nelson Mandela and what he had done when he had to confront apartheid. You know, during the same time in history, in the 50s and the 60s, it was so difficult in South Africa. The whites controlled the country. The blacks were basically the slaves. Their housing conditions and working conditions and labor conditions 
there truly was so much oppression and injustice. And there were the people who were rising up trying to, to get rid of apartheid. Many people were killed. Thousands were sent to prison. One of those was Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was sent to prison in 1963. He would be there 27 years. All through that movement going on in South Africa, they would sing the song, We Shall Overcome. We Shall Overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe that we shall overcome someday. It took a while. The struggles were great and went on. Until finally in 1990, F.W. de Klerk, who was president of South Africa, believed they were about to break into open civil war, and so they decided to release Nelson Mandela. And when Mandela came out of prison, he didn't come out with a sense of revenge and anger and wanting civil war and retribution, but he did come out determined that he would strike at apartheid, that it needed to go that legislation needed to be passed on housing and health care and education and all kinds of things so all people were treated same. As you know, Mandela got elected in 1994. And when he became elected and president there of South Africa, all the whites who had enjoyed so much under the oppression of apartheid were now afraid that there would be retribution, that there would be retaliation they all were afraid there was still going to be a civil war and so much killing. And there probably would have been if you hadn't had a leader like Mandela. Mandela established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Very unique idea. Born out of his faith. The idea was if you had been hurt, you could come forward and say, what you did was wrong to me. And the person who did it could also be there, the accused, And they could say, you are right. Would you forgive me? And so there was reconciliation and forgiveness rather than retaliation. And and when you started getting the truth out and when people were able to share their stories, they were able to let so much in the past go. And they began to stop all this possibility of civil war. If you saw the movie Invictus, you saw the spirit right off the bat when Mandela took office. There's a great scene where he has all of his cabinet in place now. And one of those that he had in place was the person who had run the athletic department. You see, there in South Africa, rugby was the national sport. Rugby was the rich white man's sport. All of the black children played soccer. The white people played rugby. For their mascot, they had the springbok. It's kind of a small antelope. Beautiful, fast, Their colors were green and gold. And so the colors of green and gold and the springbok, it really became the symbol of apartheid. And when the athletic commission came into power, one of the first things they wanted to do was get rid of it. And when Mandela heard what they were about to do, he gathered up his senior advisors, jumped in a car, and went to the meeting. And there he said, you know, we have been wronged and harmed and we're angry, and you want retaliation, but this isn't right. This is just what they're afraid we will do. We need to let them have the springbok 
and the green and gold. And they listened to him and agreed. Mandela then went to the rugby team and said, two things I need out of you. I now need you to go into all the countryside where the children are playing, the poor, and see there are no fields they play in the dirt. But I want you to teach them rugby. I want you to get to know them and let them get to know you. And when the team begin to go out and see these kids and teach them, something happened in their soul. And Mandela said, the second thing is, I need you to win the World Cup. The World Cup was being hosted there in South Africa that year. But no one expected South Africa to win the World Cup. They weren't that quality of a team. But he so inspired them. He so got them excited and to believe in themselves. They began playing better than they had ever played before. And before they knew it, they were in the finals of the World Cup. They're being played in South Africa. The whole nation was so excited. There's a great scene in the movie when you come near to the end and there's this stadium and it is packed with people, white and black. And the rugby team comes out and before the game starts, here comes Nelson Mandela out onto the field dressed in a a, a jersey of green and gold, wearing a cap of the springbok, going out to stand with the team. I mean, it's a powerful moment. A moment that said, we are one country. Black and white. President there with the white team, we're one country. Well, it turned out, I had a friend who grew up in South Africa. And he and his wife came to dinner one night. Marsh and I were visiting with them. And I asked him, I said, have you seen the movie Invictus? I mean, Is it true or is it Hollywood? And he said, no, no, it's a great movie. Actually reflects very much what the spirit was like among the white people and the black people and Nelson Mandela. No, no, it was a great representation of everything except one thing. So what's that? He said, you know that scene at the end when they got the stadium full of people and Nelson Mandela is going to come out onto the field? I said, yes. He said, I was there. I was there. I was there in the stadium when that game played and all that happened. And I got to tell you, Hollywood got it wrong. It was ten times better than what they showed. They couldn't capture the excitement. They could not capture the incredible energy. They could not capture the thrill of how everybody felt when our president came onto the field dressed in green and gold, wearing a springbok cap to stand with the team. In that moment, we knew we were one country. It was an incredibly powerful moment. And I thought, for how many decades... Had Nelson Mandela sung, we'll walk arm in arm. We'll walk hand in hand. We'll walk hand in hand. Because I do believe, deep in my heart, we'll walk hand in hand.
someday. Paul said, Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if we do not lose heart. Sometimes it takes a little music to help us remember. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.